This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Camille Egdorf was born into a fishing family. At only six months old, she was accompanying her parents to their family lodge in Alaska, where she eventually guided. Today, Camille lives in Montana and works at Yellow Dog, where she is their Alaska and Christmas Island program director. I met with Camille in Bozeman to discuss the rise of her career, growing up in Alaska, and how she decided to start guiding. Actually, I was born in Billings, Montana, and then raised in Hardin, which is about 45 minutes east of there. It's kind of right along the Bighorn River. Right. That's my, my best reference point for folks in the fly fishing world because the Bighorn River. Yeah, right. <laughs> I actually didn't know that you're from Montana. Mm-hmm. I just always have associated you as Alaska. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do. The biggest thing is I kind of spent half my year in Alaska, half year in Montana. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the big thing for my parents when I was growing up was they wanted me to have friends and play sports and, and kind of get that exposure outside of being in middle of Alaska in the bush. Yeah. So that was one of their big things for having come back to Montana in the off season. Do you have siblings as well? I have a half brother and half sister, but both are oh, quite a bit older than I am. So I was pretty much raised as an only child. Mm, I can see why they'd want you to come back. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you had a regular life. Were you homeschooled or anything? No. So I went to a public school. Uh, Hardin High School. You know, pretty regular childhood, truthfully. Went to Hardin for school throughout, you know, primary, elementary, middle, and high school. So pretty much all my schooling was there. Played sports. And, um, you know, during the summers, went to Alaska with my parents. Starting at what age? 
I was six months old. Okay, so basically your entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. You have to walk me through. So let, let's talk about your parents' timeline. Who <laughs> are your parents? Yeah. Well, my mom, Kim Megdorf, uh, she grew up in Idaho Falls, and she originally started out as a hairdresser. And she looks like she would. I mean, she's blonde and she's beautiful, and mm-hmm. she looks like she takes care of herself. She does. Yeah. Yep. And she's very outgoing. She's probably the most colorful person I know. Colorful. Both yes. personality and you know fashion. Yeah. Um, you can see her a mile away. <laughs> um, but she, like I said, she started out as a hairdresser in Idaho, and she quickly realized that it just wasn't something that she wanted to do with her life. And so she decided that she was just going to leave and go to Alaska and work at a lodge out of the blue. And uh, wait, wait, wait. So I totally stereotyped your mom, which is I'm that is so ignorant of me. I assumed, you know, it was, you know, your mom met your dad, your dad was an outfitter, and that he dragged her up there kicking and screaming, I am such an asshole. Oh my goodness. So she literally one day was just like, I'm gonna go work at a lodge because it's different and it's out of my comfort zone. Yeah, pretty much. She oh, well, she she just grew up in a place where, you know, religion was a big part of her everyday life. And um, so I think she just finally got fed up, decided that she was going to do something way out of the normal. And I mean, her whole family, everybody thought she was nuts, you know. And uh, But she did. She left. She went and worked up at Tick Chick Narrows. She worked in the kitchen. And um, all of her cooking skills, she pretty much learned there. My dad happened to be a pilot for the lodge at that time. Oh, it's just getting cooler. Okay. <laughs> so he's like a bush pilot? Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> so that's kind of her story. And then my dad, he's a Minnesota boy. He uh, he grew up just outside of Henning. Okay. And, um, you know, grew up that classic backwoods kind of country mountain man lifestyle where he worked on a farm, you know, went and milked cows every single morning before going to school. And um, to make extra money, he would go trapping and sell squirrel furs for five bucks a piece. And, you know, very much the outdoorsy Midwestern type guy. He uh, went into the military and he ended up becoming a medic and serving throughout the Vietnam War. And he never did go over to Vietnam, but he worked a lot in the hospitals here in the States. And so got that background. Then once he left uh, the military, he actually moved over to Colorado. This is, this is kind of what I think happened. My sure. dad probably has a lot more details. <laughs> yeah. But he ended up getting his pilot's license while he was going to gunsmithing school. So he did that for a while. He did a lot of pilot instruction. And then one of his, I think one of his instructors or mentors told him, you know, you ought to go up to Alaska and spend some time up there and fly around and, you know, see see what that's all about. Because it was back in the 70s when Alaska was really kind of getting to be the, the place to go. You know, the fur rush, the gold rush, the herring, all of that. And so he's like, okay. <laughs> so he bought himself a little Super Cub and flew up to Alaska. And he started off with flying air taxi for a number of years he spotted herring for a number of years. He flew trap lines. Um, I mean, really was the ultimate frontiersman for for quite a while. Sounds like yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, gosh, some of the stories he has are unreal. But then he started flying for Tick Chick, and that's where he met my mom. So what's the story there? He, he walks into the lodge. I'm sure there's a story of how they met. Oh, yeah. So the story that I got was... It was at the very end of the day, and um, my dad had gotten done flying, and he saw this gal down on the docks fishing. And what really is kind of funny, um, he said he saw this gal out there trying to fish and smoke a cigarette at the same time. (laughs) 
And he just is like, you know, I really ought to get to know this gal. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, long story short, you know, they got to know each other. and, And I think that romance just blossomed from there. You know, I think my mom has always been very much attracted to that kind of gruff, woodsy Bushman. type guy. Yeah. yeah. You know, my dad had a big beard and wore hip boots everywhere. He still does. Yeah. <laughs> He's had a beard for 30 plus years of his life. I've never seen him without one. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was just one of those things where romance just really took off and, and, um, that's where their history started. And then you came along. And then I came along. Yeah. So and they said, she's not going to change our lifestyle. I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, what happened was, so they got together and then they actually spent a couple of years full time in Alaska. They didn't come back to Montana. Oh, okay. So they just wintered. living there. Yep. Just living there. My dad did the trapping and then my mom was a substitute teacher over at the school, which is actually now called Mission Lodge over on Lake Oliknagik. Okay. And uh, so then they got married in 86, I believe. And then uh, in 89, I was born. Got it. Did they have the lodge at this point? They started in 82. Wow. So that's a whole different story in itself. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just tell me a little bit of history about the lodge? Yeah. So basically, once my parents got together, they decided that they wanted to start something of their own. And um, it was going to be more of a pop-up, fixed-base kind of tent camp that was going to be remote and removed and on a fishery that is, I mean, of course, incredible. And so they kind of settled on the Nushigak River, the upper Nushigak oh, River. Oh, of course. Yep. And um, so they've been there. It's flying only, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So you only can get there by way of plane or by a very, very long jet boat ride. And so they started doing that, and they basically found a piece of land on the Nushigak that was owned privately by a native. And so they developed a, a working relationship to where they could build that camp there, and it's been there ever since. Okay, so 82, and you were born when? In 89. As a total side note, I've been waiting for Camille to get a few more years under her belt, <laughs> because I've wanted you on the show for the last few years, but do you remember me saying to you in I iCast? Do. I, I was do. like, <laughs> you should have one more year underneath your belt. I'm yeah. like, okay. <laughs> I just need another year, just because I, I, I was watching your career, and it's just, it was such an upward trajectory. And I didn't want to sit you down and podcast you right as your career, because we learn so much about ourselves, especially as women in the sport. Mm-hmm. And as our careers rise, we learn a lot and we, you know, we get faced with a lot of decisions that we have to make and questions mm-hmm. about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, I'm going to let her continue on this rise. And I mean, obviously your career is still rising, but I wanted, I just wanted you to have a bit of time to digest sure. what was happening. So this is just, uh, so you're almost 30. Yeah, I know. Jesus, Last you're almost my 30. 20, my 20s. Because <laughs> when did I talk to you on the phone that time? Oh, so I was in college. I think I was a, I was a freshman. And so I would have been, I would have been about 10 years ago. When I was 19. Goodness, God, mm-hmm. you could look at you. You're all grown up and married and you're I a know. woman. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so 89, back to, back to the point. So 89, you uh, are born. Mm-hmm. And what happened? My parents, you know, I, I really have to hand it to them. They didn't really let having a child really change their lifestyle or let them, or make them slow down or anything. And I really, I'm appreciative of that because I think that what they did during my childhood really shaped who I am now. But in May... It was time to head back to Alaska for the season, and so I was six months old. And um, some of my fondest, earliest memories are spent sitting in a cardboard box <laughs> in the main cook dining tent, hanging out and just watching these clients come in and out and these guides and just being in that fishing environment all the time. And 
from a, as long as I can remember, I just, I've always loved it. And who who was watching you? Oh, my mom. But yep. did she have someone helping her, obviously, cooking and stuff? Yeah, so she had a couple of gals or at least one other gal in there that was helping out with the cooking duties. But for the most part, it was, yeah, she was there kind of hanging out with me, watching me, and making sure that I didn't get into trouble or touch the hot stove or yep. something. And <laughs> I'm sure you experience these things with Adelaide. I'm going through it right now. <laughs> so did they have any sort of precautions set up just in case of emergency? Is, is there medical staff on board over there? So um, not necessarily. You know, everybody is trained in CPR and first aid and everything, of course. And we have all the necessary things that you'd need to be able to take care of somebody if they're gravely ill or have a serious injury. Um, and then my dad is always on on call, basically, with that aircraft, where if, mm-hmm. if something were to happen and something needed to be flown out right away, he's on it. How and far of a flight out is it? It's about a 50-minute flight. Five zero? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just all part of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. I, and I refuse to have mothers be shamed for making those decisions. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So I totally, I actually really appreciate where your parents came from mm-hmm. raising you. So how long did that go on for? I mean, still to this day? Yeah, basically. Um so there was a period of time where my parents actually had sold the business. They sold it to a long-term guide of theirs. And this was, I think this was in 98 when they did that. Why did they do that? I think that, you know, they kind of hit a point where they had become very successful with the business. You know, back in the 90s, the economy was doing great. People were traveling. People were fishing a lot. And I think that they wanted also for me to do some other things outside of just going to Alaska every summer, you know, having more exposure and opportunity, which I get. And truthfully speaking, in those five years that my parents didn't have it, I did get to do a lot of really cool things. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I did. Um, Things that I probably wouldn't have been able to have done. In fact, I know I wouldn't have done had I not had those five years. Fishing related or just, you know, being a a young person? Being a young person, truthfully, Um, you know. One of those things, I've always been infatuated with horses. Right. You know, right. I, I still today, like, I would love to have horses at some point um, when the time is right. But I got into equestrian. I showed cool. horses for those five years. I was part of the AQHA or American Quarter Horse Association and um, really got to be a pretty, I'll, I'll toot my own horn. I was a really good horse horseman. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I did very well with it. And, uh, and in addition to that, I got to do some travel. I went to Africa with my dad, um, went and did a photo safari to the Serengeti and other places. How and old were you when you did that? I was 12. Was that a good age, do you think? I think so. Yeah. I think I was right on the border of being too young mm-hmm. to where I, I just didn't quite appreciate everything. But, you know, going back and looking at those memories and those photos, it's just like, wow. How many 12-year-olds do you know that get to go and do something like that? You know, my first big game animal was a black wildebeest. And so it's, it's just one of those things where it sticks with you for a very long time, even though it happened a long time ago. You weren't hunting. You were just So we did, we did a photo safari, and then we did a hunting safari. Wow. That yeah. is an experience. Oh, my goodness. At 12 years old? Mm-hmm. I, a lot of those safaris don't even let people, like minors, go. Yeah. I mean, this was, gosh, this was... A long time ago, I was mm-hmm. 12 years old, so this was eons ago. I don't know what the regulations are anymore, but we were in South Africa, and then we were in Tanzania. It was it was really wonderful. So for five years, 89, so you were just getting in, you were a young teenager. I was, yep. And then, uh, so yeah, from 98 to about 2004 was when this all kind of took place. And also, during that five-year time frame, my parents started a quail farm. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know. Can I have your parents on the show? Like they are oh my so gosh. cool. Okay, so where where was that? It was in Harden, and it was called Big Sky Quail Farm. 
<laughs> and at one point in time, we had probably 10,000 birds that we were caretake, you know, taking care of at one point in time. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my work ethic and, and how I am today definitely stems from my upbringing in Alaska. But I have to say that a huge amount of it came from the responsibility that I had with that program. Because, I mean, it was a 12-hour-a-day project at times where we're moving birds, we're incubating eggs and then hatching them, moving them to brooders, feeding, watering, and you know, catching birds for preserves and fixing nets. And I mean, it was just a nonstop project. Can I ask you some questions about that? Yeah. I recently had my first bird hunt in Iowa uh-huh. and I, I understood that they were farmed birds. I, I personally didn't enjoy that they were farmed birds, mm-hmm. but I was also told that the farmed birds are bred to be a little slower uh, there were certain characteristics that were bred out of them. Is it the same thing? Is that first of all, is that true? And second of all, is that true with quail? Uh, that's a good question. You know, from my experience with it, I don't really know a whole lot about you know what was kind of taken out of that genetic strain to make it more wild or whatever. I think it has a little bit more to do with how they're raised. So for us, what we did was when we had them out into the flight pens and in the brooder pens and stuff, we really tried really hard to be as hands-off with them as possible. So they had as minimal amount of human exposure as, you know, we could, we could get. And so that would make them more wild and more like wild birds when you put them out onto a preserve. For people to hunt. Right. Just for my non-hunting people. That, that's what they're for, right? Right. Exactly. And uh, so in the flight pens, we actually grew bushels of what's called a kosher weed. And it's a, it's a noxious weed that grows rampant, and um, it's really thick. And so it was perfect cover for these birds to basically not even see us, even though they're inside of a pen. So I don't know. I, I think that pen-raised birds are going to be slower anyways, just because, you know, they have food fed given to them every single day. They don't have to forage and scavenge for it all the time and work hard to be fed like a wild bird does. But yeah, I mean, I think that if you just do it right and and keep yourself hands off with them as much as possible, you're going to have a bird that's just as wild as any other bird out that you find organically in the field somewhere. Okay. So it's not like they're breeding them to have them, you know, make them have different foot shapes or wing size or anything like that. Not, not that I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, maybe nowadays this is, again, this has been a while ago, but (laughs) yeah, Yeah. it could be very different. But from what I remember, we didn't have anything like that going on. All right. So talk to, (laughs) so so back to you guys though. So you've got the farm, you had it for five years. Yep. So we, well, we probably had it for a little bit longer, but we, we pretty much had that from, I think 1999 on through to maybe 2005, 2006, but going back to the business in Alaska. So longtime guy took it over. And he ran that for a few years. And then, unfortunately, he was killed in a small aircraft accident outside of Hardin. Oh, Um, no. Yeah. So really, really an unfortunate situation. And I think at the time there was still some payments being made or my parents still had a note on the lodge. And so when he passed away, it bounced back to my folks. He didn't have dependents or anything? Mm -mm. Mm-mm. So I ended up taking it back. And in 2000, and, I think it was 2004, was our first summer back after having been gone for a while. So at this point, were you? What were you wanting to do with your life? How old were you in 2004? I could probably I do was that, four, 13 or 14. Okay. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking you were going to be doing equestrian work when you were older? Good question. Uh, there was a lot of thought around equestrian, um, going to equine school and studying equine science and things like that. Um, I also had dreams of aviation and becoming a pilot maybe. Oh my goodness, what'd your dad think of that? You know, it's funny because I think I think it was something that he 
he was like, I don't want you ever to feel pressured to become a pilot. I want it to be something you want to do. And if you do want to be a pilot, you need to have somebody else other than me train you. And he was okay with that. Yeah, um, he was. And, you know, one thing that I have also learned just being around aviation, around him and other pilots, and, and something that he has really seen from being an instructor and flying for over 40 years is you start to pick out the personality types that are a good fit for being um, pilots. Like the ones who don't show off. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, not having that, um, you know, personality of I'm the best pilot in the world. You know, not to say that I have the perfect personality to become a pilot, but he was okay with it because, you know, I I can be very, you know, detail-oriented and I'm kind of OCD about things and I have a routine and and a lot of which I, I basically got from him. But, you know, for me in aviation, I still would love to get my pilot's license. It's definitely something that's on my bucket list to do. But um, it's one of those things, too, where it's either going to be a career path or it's going to be a really expensive hobby. Mm-hmm. And right now, I just don't have room for either one of those in my <laughs> life. So <laughs> maybe down the road. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, so so you were stuck between horses and airplanes. Did you ever think that maybe fishing would be a career path for you? Uh, you know, I didn't really start thinking hard about fishing until we pretty much went back to Alaska. Just because I was so ingrained with the horses and everything that I kind of just, I kind of had that five-year, I guess, break, you could call it, from fishing. Um, I still loved it, and I still love to do it. But uh, I think I just was, at that time, so obsessed with horses that I just didn't really think about anything else other than horses and maybe airplanes. So you would have been going back to the lodge about 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really sensitive time in a young girl's life. Mm-hmm. You've got friends, girls at that age can be unkind, mm-hmm. um, boys come around. Yeah. So if you have a boyfriend, you're like, oh, mom and dad, don't make me go. Mm-hmm. Were you excited to go back to Alaska or were you kind of like, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm on to other things right now? No, I was very excited. And t- truth be told, I think that there was actually a year prior to us learning that we were going to be going back to where I was really wishing we would go back. Oh, what, what was it about it that made you want to go back? I uh, I really missed that camping atmosphere of being in the wilderness. I missed the blueberries. I, m- I mean, the blueberries in Alaska, I'm sure you've, you've probably had some, are just amazing. And being a young kid, that was the one thing I was always most excited <laughs> about. And then just the fishing and the wildlife, the people, and just the lifestyle. I mean, I just... I loved it. Because up, up there, it's not like... I've only ever fished the Upper Nishkak once. Mm-hmm. And I recall it, it wasn't all mountain-esque, really. Like, like you weren't nestled in the mountains. It was very tundra-esque. Yep. The blueberry... There weren't blueberry bushes like you think of in your garden. I mean, it was like blueberries on the ground. I spent a yeah. lot of time sitting on the ground picking uh-huh. blueberries. Yep, that's exactly what it is. So it's more like rolling hills. And you got these river bottoms with um, you know spruce trees and stuff. And then... Off in the distance, a long ways, you might see one little mountain peak here and there. So it's very much, like you said, it's kind of that tundra, rolling hills type wilderness. And um, I just, I missed all of it. And I was actually looking, I remember myself looking through old photo albums and just being like, oh, I kind of just really want to go back, you know, and ended up a year later, ended up going back. So what happened to the quail farm? Um, so we ran it for another couple of years and it just got to be one of those things where it's hard to run a business when you're not present. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, we ended up having to close it down just because it was hard to find somebody that could be trustworthy to run it and make sure that everything was done the way it needed to be done. And so I think my dad just made the decision that it's best just to close this down and maybe someday down the road reopen it. But, um, now it's not even legal to have quail in Montana. 
raised oh, quail. So wow, yeah. So now it would be just like pheasants and you know Hungarian partridge or something like that. So so you went back to the lodge, mm-hmm. and then what happened? At that point, were you thinking I could work here in the summer and make some extra money? Um, I don't. I honestly don't really recall. I think I was just so stoked to go back that I just was. That's all I thought about. But I do remember, you know, going back and and being in, up there in 2004 and just really kind of just going all in on the fishing. And uh, that's where I learned most about fly fishing. That's where I got the most exposure with, you know, how to be a guide and how to interact with clientele. Because I think you're at that age at that point where you can really start to mold yourself around different per- personalities and how to deal with that. And and so I just really kind of just was a sponge yeah, and soaked it all up and started helping my mom with the kitchen and, and doing chores around the camp. And so I learned kind of the back story when it comes to what goes on when clients are out fishing every day. And were your um, parents grooming you to take over that lodge looking back at it now? I, I don't think so. I don't think that they were purposely trying to, I think that it was something that crossed their mind and it certainly crossed mine. But again, it was never something to where I felt like I was being prepped to take it over. Yeah. I don't think your parents sound like they would just want you to follow your heart doing whatever you loved. Right. Mm -hmm. But it is advantageous to have you aware of what goes on so that if in the event you did want to take over, it would already be something, you you know, Mm -hmm. the the operations you'd already be made aware of. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, gosh, I got to see all the ins and outs of it. I mean, from the big grocery runs that we had to go do in Anchorage at Costco and um, going into Floats Alaska and getting the plane all put together and put the floats on and getting it annualed and then flying out from there to Dillingham and going through that whole process and then putting the camp together to get ready for the season, training guides, uh, meals. And I mean, just the whole thing. Like I was there for every bit of it. Do you remember the first time when you thought, I kind of would like to try guiding. Oh, yeah. When was yep. it? What was it like? So I was out on the river with one of our, um, gosh, I can't remember. I think it, his name was, might, might have been, I think it was Jake. Jake was one of the guys I was with. And I believe he mentioned to me at one point, you know, you, know, you, you ought to think about maybe becoming a guide. You're actually really, you're doing really well at fly fishing and, and you know the river and you know the fish and you know the area. And, you know, being a, a people person will come with time. So I kind of just was like, eh, I don't know. Like my confidence level wasn't super high, and I was just like, I don't think I could be able to how, handle the how boat. How old were you? Do you think I was fifteen? Okay, yep, yep. And uh, so, anyways, there was just a lot of insecurities there. So over the time, as I started getting older, with every new season, I actually kind of started to go out with clients from camp when they uh, came into camp on arrival day. They just do some walk waiting or on camp. So I'd go out there and I'd basically show them where to go and, you know, kind of tell them what to use and where to cast. And so that's when I really started just kind of like, okay, maybe if I can figure this out, then I can figure out this next piece. And so then it was just kind of like segments from there. And, um, I think the biggest concern that I had overall was just managing a boat (laughs) truthfully, sure. Um, driving it, being able to fix the motor when I broke down or rowing the boat, of course, and just being able to manage it in a way that I could, keep my people fishing at all times. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the biggest issue. And so over, over a period of time, I overcame that. And then when I turned 18, that's when I was a full-time guide. Got it. Did you mm-hmm. have to go to your parents to ask them or did they bring it up to you? Uh, I think I actually came, went to my dad and I was like, Hey dad, you know, 
what do you, what do you think about me maybe guiding next summer? <laughs> He's like, oh, I think that'd be great. You'd be oh, perfect for it. I love it. I love so it. 100% support from them all the way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But I'll never forget the first day I went out on a guided trip. Do you remember who you had? Oh, Steve and Fritz. Okay. Those were my two guys. guys? Uh-huh. Okay, what happened? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So the day was fine, and it was great. But, I mean, I definitely went through some issues with rowing and positioning the boat. And then uh, there was one point where I think it was Steve got snagged up on a log or something. And um, a lot of times what I would do is if it's reasonable – I'll hop out, pull the boat over, go up there, grab the fly and so he doesn't lose it. Or if I'm in a spot where I can make it happen, I'll actually just hop on the motor and motor back up the river and take it off for him. So I was trying to do that. And it got to the point where I couldn't get the motor started. And we were drifting farther and farther and farther away from where this guy was hung up. And finally, he started getting into his backing. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm like, you know what, Steve, I can't get this thing started. I can't. You're just going to have to. To break it off. Yeah. Those flesh flies are really expensive. So I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, and so, anyways, he's like, all right. So he starts pulling on it. Oh, he's fly line. Don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> First no. thing that happens, oh. his fly line pops off. <laughs> and he's like, I'll never forget him saying this. He's just like, oh, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> and I'm just like crushed, you know. <sighs> and so anyways, that happened. And then there was another point where I ended up rowing Fritz into the trees and we bounced <laughs> off the bank a little bit and I lost an oar. And I mean, it was just kind of a rodeo all day. Yep. Yep. But we ended the, we ended the day on a real high note and Fritz ended up getting a really nice, mature, beautiful, perfect rainbow trout. It was like 24, 25 inches. And it just was like, all the other stuff that happened that day didn't even happen. So I'll never forget it. It was definitely a day that I came back and I was just like, oh my God, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. <laughs> but, you know, everybody goes through days like that. And whether it's your first day or you've been doing it for 10 years. Exactly. Everybody has those mm-hmm. days. Yeah, that was my first day and I'll never forget it. But obviously you stuck with it. I did. And then you would have put in your season then when you were 18 and then you went college in the off season? So yes. So I went, so I had my first year of guiding, um, 2008. And then actually after that season wrapped up, I didn't go to college right away. I ended up doing an internship at the fly shop in Redding, California for a couple months. Oh, so, California. Mm-hmm. How did that all come into place? Well, I think it was a time where I just wasn't really ready to go to school yet. School has never really been something that I've been super stoked on. So I just wanted to go and do something else and you know, see what was out there. And so the fly shop was kind of an option at the time. And uh, they said, you know, you can come out here and work for a couple, three months, see how you like it, do an internship. It's paid and um, dip your toes into the retail side of things and then also travel sales. And so I was like, okay, sounds good. So that's what I did. And uh, went out there, I think in September, October, I can't remember, but ended up being roommates with Ryan Peterson and Justin Miller. 
and uh, like two of the biggest steelhead junkies known to the industry. So that's, yeah, that's where I started with that. And then I just worked in the travel sales kind of part of the time and then in the retail side of things part of the time. And so that's where I kind of got my exposure with steelhead fishing, spay fishing, and, you know, being kind of my first time away from home. Yeah. Talk mm-hmm. about getting, gaining some independence. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What did you take in college? I uh, studied business management and then um, minored in entrepreneurship. Talk to me about the phone call. I remember you call. what was it? I think you reached out to me on Facebook. Facebook, yeah. And you said, can we talk? Mm-hmm. Or something along the lines of yeah. that. Yeah. And I remember taking the call. I was in Arkansas at the time. I remember specifically finding a space in an office in Arkansas to talk mm-hmm. to you. Uh, what was going on in your head? What was happening there? Because you sounded really perplexed or like you were pondering your future. I was. It was a time where I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I wanted to in some way be involved with the fly fishing industry, but I didn't quite know how or what that looked like. Because this was also before what the fly fishing industry is today. Right. It, mm-hmm. it, it's changed a lot. It has. Since then. So I, can, I, I definitely understood your uncertainty of what you were going to do with yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, at the time I was thinking, well, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a sales rep for some, some, some brand, whether it's Sage or Sims or whoever. And then I was thinking, well, maybe I'm going to be a guide somewhere. Maybe I'm going to guide in Alaska during the summer and then in South America in the off-season. Or you know, maybe I'm going to develop women's product. I, I really had no clue what I wanted to do. And so, you know, you have always been somebody I've really looked up to from the very beginning. And, um, you know, I just thought, gosh, if I can just get her opinion and her thoughts and how she made it work for herself and how she's been so successful, I really feel like I could gain a lot from her knowledge. And so that's when I reached out to you. I was just, truthfully, I was just a lost kid. But I was brutally honest with you. You were. And you still fantastically decided that you were going to buck up and you were going to face those mm-hmm. obstacles and you were going to climb over them. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you did. So what how, did you finish your college? Uh, no. So <laughs> what, I never, I mean, I never really followed up with you after that. What happened after that? Did you decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this? Or did you decide, oh, I should finish my degree? Where, where did you end up going? Well, I, I continued to go to school. And in that time, I, uh, you know, I started that little blog that I had and that mm-hmm. I haven't updated in eons, uh, riplips.wordpress.com. That's and right, so I pretty right, much yeah. just talked about my experiences, both with fishing and outside of fishing there, and uh, dipped a little bit in kind of some photography. The filming. Which, in the filming, yep. So I did that. and Because you put together a fantastic piece about being you know, the offspring of these lodge owners mm-hmm. and just kind of showing us what your life was like at the lodge. That was when I really gained a better understanding of, of you mm-hmm. and, and your family. And, and I just remember watching it being like, yes, that is everything about that is so <laughs> awesome. I just loved it. Yeah. And I think that was like the case for a lot of people. Um, you know, I think that was back in a time, I mean, it wasn't that terribly long ago, but it was still a time when social media really hadn't taken off yet. And you didn't really have these huge platforms where you could really express who you were and share it with people. Mm-hmm. And so when I did Forget Me Not, that really opened up a lot of people's eyes as to what my upbringing was and what I did and what my parents have done and what they've created and what it was all about. And, um, so yeah, I did that. I did the video. I kind of dipped into a lot of different things. Um, but had you made a cognizant decision that you were going to go down that road? I did. I did. And I just, truthfully, it was one of those things where I was okay with it taking time. I was just going to do it my way. 
and do it in a way that was true to me and who I was. You know, I'm not, I'm not a very, how do I want to put it? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty reserved. I'm somebody that doesn't go out there and really throw my myself out there. And you're not a mega self promoter. No, I'm not. I'm, no. I'm very much kind of. I, I'll, I'll sit back in the background a little bit more than I will really jumping out into the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing, and it's it's also a bad thing at times, depending on the situation. But I've always just said I want to do things in a humble way that portray me as who I want to be portrayed. I don't want to be some babe in a bikini holding up big fish and you know, having that get a bunch of exposure and setting the wrong tone. You know, I, I've always said, I want to be classy, basically. And authentic. And to, authentic. To you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, to me and who I am. So that was kind of my overall approach to it. And I knew it, it would probably take a lot of time, and I think it has. But I think over the last three, four to three years, three to four years, I should say, I think it's gotten to me where I really wanted to be in the right way. I guess if that makes sense. Well, it's organic, right? It's happened organically. I, I would, I can honestly look you in the eye and say, I've, I've been following your career since before you were following your career, mm-hmm. and it is organic and authentic, and I totally admire it, and I think you've done it right, and I love it. Mm-hmm. You're exactly what we need. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So then, then what happens? So you guided for. Obviously, a few more years. Yep. So I guided up there in Alaska for about seven years. And then um, I actually started dipping into hosted travel from there. I got Who to, are you doing that through? Were you doing it through the California Fly Shop? No, I wasn't. So I was doing it through a program called Fishing with Larry out of Columbus, Montana. Like Hillary? No. No. Nope. Different Larry. Different Larry. This was so Larry Schoenborn. He had that TV show called Fishing with Larry back. I don't know, however many years ago. Okay. And so when that was taking place, there was a travel company that kind of became came from that. Wow. How did you meet Larry? So I never met Larry. I met his son, Guy. And, uh, and that, was, that was something that stemmed from being in Alaska because they hosted a group of anglers to my parents' camp. And um, I guided their group and guided Guy. And, you know, I kind of told him I would love to travel the world and fly fish, but I don't have any money to do that. So that kind of got that conversation started. And he's like, well, you know, we could always see what you, if you, you want to do some hosted trips, we could always see what we can make happen with that. And I'm like, oh, I guess I never really kind of thought about that too much. And so then I was just like, sure, let's do it. And so I ended up hosting my very first trip ever to Christmas Island in 2013, and then my second one to Agua Boa in the Amazon. And then after that, um, I was here in town going to school here in Bozeman. And a really good friend of mine, um, his name is Brian Gregson. Yeah. He's one of our photographers. He's and, amazing. Oh, he's just fantastic. And I remember speaking with him at one point. I think I had lunch with him. And he was just telling me, he's like, you know, you know, you should go check out what Yellow Dog has got going on. Um, they're here in town, they're local, and they're just kind of, you know, getting really good at what they're doing. They were great always, but this is back when Yellow Dog was really starting to get some momentum. And he's just like, you know, if you're looking for something to do, because I was cleaning houses in college, that was my part-time job. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. And I hated it. Right. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> and so I had kind of expressed that and confided in him on that. And he's like, you know, if you want to do something part-time, you should go check out Yellow Dog. So I was like, eh, Okay. So I basically just walked in the door here at Yellow Dog one day, kind of unannounced, and asked Jim for a job. What did he say? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, 
I think that'd be great. And so I actually spent a couple of days just kind of floating around in here doing itinerary admin work, just kind of getting a feel for what was really going on here. And then within a week I had, I had a job. What was your role? So at that time, I was kind of an assistant to the Alaska program, which Tom Melvin was overseeing at the time. And so I helped, and it was kind of a perfect fit with my background in Alaska. So I was kind of in that world quite a bit. And then doing itinerary work, kind of the background um, admin stuff, which is important to know because, you know, it's good to know what goes on in a business fully. Mm -hmm. And so I started off there, and then over the course of the next couple of years, I started to oversee more of the Alaska program, which I oversee full-time now. And, and your family still has a lodge there? Uh-huh. And, uh, and then I also was program director, still am program director for Christmas Island. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When was all this starting to happen? So I started working here in 2014. Okay. Yep, yep. So when you were doing all that amazing filming with, with them, was that when you were as full... Did that start first? Or did that come after you were already hired here? That came after. What's your job title now? I am program director for the Alaska and Christmas Island territories. Still. So what does Still. that entail? Yeah, good question. It entails quite a bit. So basically, I, I'm, a sales, I'm a salesman, saleswoman. So I sit on the phone and I talk with people about potential trips to Alaska, time of year, species, um, you know, lodges, different types of experience. It kind of encompasses a lot of different things. Um, and then I'm that liaison between the client and the lodge to where if this person has special dietary requirements, so I kind of shuffle it along to the lodge. And so I'm kind of there throughout the whole process to make sure that their trip goes as smoothly as possible. So you can arrange these people and then also take them. Yep. See, that's fantastic. Jeez, mm-hmm. that's real service. Yeah. Does it cost mm-hmm. them anything extra or is it all, they're just paying the standard fees through the lodge? Yeah. So that's a great thing about being here at Yellow Dog is we don't charge any more for a hosted trip than they would if they just were to go on their own. Really, really kind of a cool, cool thing for folks that have never maybe traveled to Christmas Island or the Seychelles or Belize or other places to where they can actually have somebody to go with them that has got some knowledge and experience in that fishery, and yet they don't have to pay extra amount for it. You know, it's going to still be the same thing. So, um, so I do get to go on trips quite a bit, um, Christmas Island in May, and then uh, hopefully up to Alaska. I'm going to do a visitation in Alaska this next summer again to go and check out some new lodges as well as... You know, go see some other places and make sure that uh, the relationship there is still good and see the programs and what's new. Even though I am in the office a lot, sitting on a computer, writing emails and talking on the phone, I still do get to go out and fish quite a bit and go and see these places that I get to talk about all all the time. Do you have a long-term plan for the family lodge in Alaska? Uh, You know, that's a good question. And, you know, truthfully, I've thought a lot about potential taking over the family business. But, you know, the more I've thought about it, the more I've kind of come to realize that I don't think that I'd be the right fit for it. Why? You know, just because, well, for one, I've, I've done it my whole life. And I know that with, a, with owning a lodge and owning a business like that, you, you're married to it. You know, it's, it's a full-time, year-round, day-in, day-out, seven-days-a-week type commitment. And not that that's a bad thing, and, and I, I admire people that do do that. But for me... I know that there's other things out there to do that would take me away from that. And so for the health of the business, it just, I don't think that it would be good for me to, to own it. Maybe manage it, maybe 
maybe that would work, but not to own it. Have you had these conversations with your parents yet? I have, yeah. yeah. And and they're fine. You know, like we were saying earlier, they've always been very supportive of what I want to do. And they've never once ever pressured me or made me feel like I owed it to them or was obligated to do one thing or take the business over or anything like that. Do you have any desire to own a business? Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, maybe. It would depend on what that business would be. And I don't know what that would be at this point. You're um, not even 30 yet. But, yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm old either, but still, I can tell you from experience that between 29 to, what am I, almost 36, there are a lot of changes that happen there. Yeah. So, I mean, in 10 years, it may be a different conversation. But for right now, yeah, you're probably, you must just be feeling your way and being like, I like this, I like that, mm-hmm. I don't like that. Have you had any uh, situations yet where you've been faced with been put in a compromising situation where in, in your career? Not necessarily yet. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say I have really quite yet. I think um, it would just... I guess that's a good question. No, to answer your question completely. Um, I've been very, I've been very content here in Bozeman. I love it here. It's close to my parents and I love the lifestyle here and I love the outdoors and the hunting and fishing opportunities. I'm not much of a skier, but, um, <laughs> but being here at Yellow Dog, I have been pretty happy with it truthfully. Cause it's been, I've been able to do a lot of really neat things and do things that I honestly never really thought I'd be able to do. Like going to the Seychelles for three weeks and Fishing somewhere that hasn't been fished in however many years because of pirates. I right. Mean, <laughs> I, would, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember when I actually gave up a semester of school to go do that. Right. Well, I can't I, blame you. <laughs> Jim was like, oh, I know this is kind of like right in the middle of your semester, but, you know, here's an opportunity if you want it. And I'm like, sign me up. Well, if that's the biggest, you know, sort of difficulty that you've had to make a decision on you're doing you're doing well do you feel confident enough now at this stage in your life to be able to say to somebody hey no I think so and you know I I have to say that five years ago I wouldn't have and um, I I also I, I owe a lot that to my husband because he's one of those people that he will speak his mind right then and there, regardless of who is listening and how bad it sounds like he's just gonna do that and you know he's really taught me you know, your, your name and your time and what you do is worth something. And so don't let somebody come to you and just be like, Hey, we'd love for you to write this article that needs to be 1200 words long. And it's going to go into this, this magazine. And then we're not going to pay you for it. Yeah, no. Right. Which is actually really, that's it's beyond common. (gasps) It's almost like standard industry practice Uh in a lot of ways. And then I know for me as a woman, if I'm like, well, listen, I need to be paid. You run the risk of them being like, oh, she's a diva. Oh, yeah. And it's like, no, 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 I'm not a diva. I am a professional and a businesswoman mm-hmm. who is busy, and I would like to be compensated for my time because you're making money off of it. Mm-hmm. 100%. Right. And, and you know, and I won't, I won't go into detail on this, but there, now that I do think about it, there was a situation in the past where something like that was happening. Right. And with Matt prodding me along, I stood my ground and I was like, hey, you're going to be making a lot of money off of my name and you're not going to pay me for it? I mean, for crying out loud. Yeah, good for you. Come on. You'd be amazed how many people, if I hear somebody say to me one more time, but it's good exposure for you, it's going to make me throw up. (laughs) Where do you see your career going from here? You know, that's a good question. Um, 
And I, truthfully, I don't really probably know myself. I think it's going to be something that I'm always going to be asking. And I think it's, it's a healthy thing. Oh, for sure. To not necessarily know where you're going to be in five, six years. And you never know what decisions you're going to be faced with. Right. Or opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, but I do, I do see it being within the fly fishing industry for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that, I mean, I know that Alaska is going to be a huge part of that. I mean, Alaska is in my blood, you know, and so I'll always go back and go up there and spend as much time as I can. And, uh, I don't know if the travel world is, is going to be there. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, but I definitely have, you know, big hopes and dreams of being able to travel more and, and, um, just just continuing to enjoy what I do and sharing it with others, too. Did I see you with... I have seen you with some freaky-looking fish. Yeah, you probably saw me with a bumphead parrotfish. I did, and I would like to ask you about that because <laughs> I would like to catch one so bad. Just tell me the experience, oh. please. How do I do it? What am I looking for? Did they do take flies? Because I remember people saying they don't take flies, don't waste your time. They do take flies. Um well, for, first and foremost, it's it'll drive you absolutely insane. I, I spent probably a good two days just pulling my hair out because, I mean, so what they do is they, they get on these flats, usually around coral, and they're in like these packs. They actually, they kind of call them, they kind of call them the, the cattle of the flats, basically. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because they, they just graze around in like packs of 10 to 15. So they just look like big Balls of blue? Yeah. Big blue balls? Yep. Okay. <laughs> got it. Sorry. That is a great way to put it. <laughs> yep. So you got to look for that. And um, they have what they call the, the matriarch fish or the lead fish. Oh. And so it's a combination of figuring out what direction they're traveling, where the current is at with the tide, and then you have to figure out which one is the lead fish. Because the lead fish, I guess, in some degree is the one that's going to be most likely to eat. Like tarpon? Or is it the sort of thing where they say cast behind the lead fish? Or no, are you want to cast the to lead the lead fish. Yeah, you want to cast to the lead fish. You go out there and you figure all this out, and then it's just a matter of luck at that point, whether or not these fish actually eat. Because first and foremost, they have beaks. They don't have just regular mouths like a permit or a tarpon or anything like that. It's a legit beak. Because they eat like coral and crushed crabs and stuff. And... Uh, so even if you do hook one, the fly just a lot of times just falls out. What kind of flies are you using? You're using crab flies. Okay. Yeah. So they're not just vegetarians. No. They will eat. They will eat crabs, crabs for sure. Okay. So anyways, you just kind of hope and pray that you see that fish move towards the general direction of your fly. And then usually if you see them, just like a bonefish, if they tilt and they kind of tail, mm-hmm. that's kind of your sign to maybe do a quick strip set. Do you have a wire leader on or anything? Uh, no, you just have, I think we had 30 pound leader on there. Okay. So their teeth, you know, in their beaks, I, it just always looks like, what are their teeth like? Do they have, no, they don't have teeth. They've got beaks. Mm -hmm. So they can't cut through though, cut through your line. So they can, they do and they do, but they've got these gaps on Uh, their, on their like corner of their mouth. Like the maxillary, they're trying to floss their maxillary. Yeah, basically. And Uh. and it's just gums. And so if you can hook them right there, you're golden. Right. But I mean, every once in a while, you'll get them right on the beak line and it'll just fall out. And then they also have, if you look at them on a picture, it almost looks like they have four sets of beak, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's a very strange configuration going on over there. And they're just a weird fish. But they got like this line right down the middle. Yeah. And sometimes you'll actually get the hook caught in that. And then you'll end up getting your fish and it's just... It's just a game of being lucky. Yeah. Honestly. Do they go straight for the coral? They do, yeah. They, they go straight for the coral, deep water, and they don't really run hard. They just pull. 
I mean, it's just it's just a tug of war, basically, with them. Right. Because how big do they get? Oh, gosh. Huge. I mean, 50s, 60. I mean, I think the ones that I saw, or at least the bigger ones I saw, are probably 80 pounds. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, and the funniest thing about a parrotfish and the grossest thing about them, too, is when you're bringing them in and you actually start to kind of handle them for a photo, yeah, they shit on you. Of course they do. All over you. It's just this green muck. Yeah. And it is just and it stinks and it's just oh well they can shit all over me because I really want to catch one so bad. Um okay, talk about talk about Alaska to me just real quick. The rainbows there. Mm-hmm. Does the Nishiak have the do they have the really big leopard rainbows? Like you see, like like I'll look at Kate Taylor, for example, and she's catching these enormous rainbows. But uh-huh. when I fished the Nishiak, they were beautiful and they were nice size. But if you wanted something with size, you're fishing for like coho or, or you know, some of the salmon species. Yeah. Do, do you guys in your region have the larger rainbows? Good question. I would say to to be very honest, no. So the Nishigak rainbow, at least up by where my parents are. I would say the largest rainbow that we have up there is going to be about 25 inches. Okay, that's about what I thought. So why is that? Is it a diet thing? Is it a climate thing? I'm sure it's a combination of things, yes. I think that, I mean, they have an abundant amount of food. I think it's just, it's smaller water, for one. And I think that for a big fish, they just need a lot more room. And, um, you know, when you start getting a lot of salmon up that high in that river system, too, Mm -hmm. it just packs that whole thing full of fish. And it actually displaces a lot of those resident fish, you know, the dollies and the grayling and, of course, the rainbows as well. So at the peak time of the season when those salmon are spawning, a lot of times you have a hard time finding those fish. Just because there's just so many in there that they just kind of get lost. Are you guys fishing beads all day? So you can, you can fish beads, but I think that a lot of people forget the fact, or they just don't know the fact that you can actually still catch quite a few fish on flush flies and streamers. Mm-hmm. A lot of times what I would do is I'd take a woolly tinsel bugger. Tinsel flies. I was smacking them on tinsel yeah. flies. Clousers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can still catch a lot of fish without having to use eggs. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not against eggs. It's just more fun for me to fish other methods. And it's the same way for me too. You know, I, if I want to just hammer fish and catch as many as I want, then yeah, I'll definitely fish an egg. But for me, it's more, I want to kind of do something different. I'd like to, you know, dink around with a streamer or a mouse pattern even. Oh, will they take mice? Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I don't care if they're 12 inches. If they're taking mice, I am all about it. Oh yeah, for sure. So you'll definitely get some topwater fishing. Um, I've also used, so the fat Albert beetle, Rainbows will eat that too, but the grayling go nuts over it. Oh, right. Just right. skated on across the surface at a 45 degree angle. Yeah. I mean, they'll come up four, five, six times trying to grab it. Is it because their mouths are so small? They just I think can't so, quite, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they just have a really bad sense of aim too. <laughs> it's a good thing they're pretty. Yes, exactly. Um, what about the pike? Do you guys have people fish for pike up there? Yeah. So up on the Nushagak, for mm. example, um, you have more pike downriver. Just because you have bigger sloughs, and um, once you start getting up to the headwaters where my parents are, it's just it's colder water, um, and there just isn't a whole lot of food there for them. So we don't really see very many northerns up there. But other places in Alaska, you know, like the Yukon drainage, hands down, some of the best northern pike fishing there is. They're huge there. They're giant, yes. I remember fishing for pike in the Nishigak, and they weren't huge, Mm-mm. but they were so much fun. They are. I think the smaller ones can be a lot more fun than the big ones. You can see like the wake that you see when, oh, yeah. they, when they're coming at you. Because mm-hmm. that water's not very deep. How deep is a lot of that water? I would say 
four or five, maybe maybe six feet deep. And then if you're up in the shallows and the yeah, weeds, we were in the shallows. Yeah, it'll be two feet deep. That, yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to leave it at that. Let's do this again. Yes, in like 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm game. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. This was great. <laughs> you bet. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks for listening. 